If you look up San Diego on Wikipedia and scroll down the page past history and geography down to the climate section, you'll read that the city of San Diego has one of the top ten climates in the Farmer's Almanac. Snow in the city is so rare, it's only been observed five times in the last 150 years. In 1882, 1946, 1947, 1967, and in 1987. Wikipedia is very exact when it chooses its verbs. It says that snow has been observed only five times in 150 years. In Chicago, we don't observe snow, we shovel it. I've visited my brother occasionally, usually in January, and Wikipedia tells you why. But back during the Second Gulf War, my brother, who is a master gunnery sergeant in the Marine Corps, was scheduled to deploy to Iraq. So I went to see him during the octave of Easter. And since he was going to be in harm's way for six to 12 months, I thought it was a nice time to get him acquainted with his local parish, if you catch my drift. He managed to locate it with the help of Google Maps, and we went there for Sunday Mass. As luck would have it, we made it just in time for the 10 o'clock liturgy. The place was packed, and much to my brother's discomfort, the only seats available were in a pew four rows from the front. The liturgy was, well, let's say it was different from what I'm used to. I associate the saxophone with high school marching bands Kenny G and Bill Clinton, not necessarily in that order. And when used in combination with a piano and a bass guitar, it makes an intriguing accompaniment to ye sons and daughters. It was, after all, the um, Sunday in the octave of Easter. Here we want the liturgy to be as expressive of the, all the beauty and mystery that the noble simplicity of the Roman rite allows. And we do that not only because we're monks living in a secular city where religious and the spiritual dimensions of human life are often excluded or ignored. We do it because we want to encounter Christ not in an aesthetic experience, but as a religious experience. We want to evoke faith and feed prayer. Parishes have their own concerns, of course. Sometimes these concerns are reflected in the effort to have good liturgy, and sometimes they are reflected in the effort to have poor liturgy. I use the word effort deliberately here because you have to work hard to get either one. During the Our Father, the cell phone of a man near us went off. The opening bars of Ein Kleiner Nacht music floated through the church, or at least as far as the wall-to-wall -wall beige carpeting would allow. I thought, well, he's going to turn off his phone, but no, he answered it. And then I thought, well, he's going to say that he's at Mass right now, and whoever it is should call him back later. Wrong again. Instead, he proceeded to carry on a phone conversation all through the Agnus Day and most of communion. Basically, he turned the entire church into his phone booth, oblivious to the looks he was getting from the people around him. Now, as you reach into your own pocket or purse and 
quietly turn off your cell phone. Let me explain that my purpose in relating this little incident is not to discuss the niceties of cell phone etiquette. What I'm interested in are the theological assumptions that lurk beneath. And let's not fool ourselves into thinking that theology has nothing to do with it. Did that man carry on a telephone conversation during Mass because he was oblivious to what the rest of us were doing? Or because he felt that his phone call was more important than what we were doing? Did he think that the person on the other end of the conversation was more real than the person to whom we claim to be at the center of our liturgies? The problem isn't a phone call. The problem is a worldview. In this case, a theological worldview that has infected all of us and that can be tracked by answering for yourself a simple question. Where exactly is the Lord Jesus Christ? The standard answer that most people tend to give is that Christ is in heaven, a place which by every definition puts him beyond pain, fear, and death, not to mention planet Earth. And this is not entirely wrong. The creed affirms he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. But the problem is when we leave Christ up there, separate and cut off from life down here, where in our personal, family, communal, or spiritual lives, we feel connected to him perhaps by only the thinnest tether of grace. How do we go from belief in a distant Christ to a living communion with the risen Lord? The problem of believing in a God we cannot see is not merely a postmodern preoccupation. It is also present in the community for whom St. John wrote his gospel, a community that must have been asking itself, now that he reigns in heaven, how do we carry on in Jesus' absence? John's answer is that Christ is to be found in the universal experience of love, loving, and being loved. Whoever loves me will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling in him. It's not a matter of living in a two-tiered world with Christ in heaven and ourselves on earth. It's a matter of learning how to recognize him in the hidden ordinariness of our daily lives. That's the role of the paraclete whom the Father will send, the Spirit who helps us see that the risen and glorious body of the Lord now lives in and among us, and that, to quote Hopkins, the world is charged with the glory of God. The liturgy is gently preparing us for Ascension Thursday and Pentecost Sunday, the two great feasts that will conclude the Easter season. These are not feasts that celebrate Christ's absence. They point to his presence in a new and strikingly different way. He's no longer in a specific place, space, and time bound by the laws of physics as he was before his death and resurrection. The risen Christ is present in every space and at every time. In 1997, seven months before she died, Denise Levertov published a book of poems called The Stream and the Sapphire. She wrote in the foreword to the book that the poems chronicle 
her passage from agnosticism up to her entry into the Catholic Church. One of the poems is called Flickering Mind. In it, Levertov writes about her struggle to pray. But Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, the way she prays, happens to be also the way she believes. God feels to her a distant person at the other end of a long conversation. So the poem is about the struggle to believe in a God that she finds hard to address because of his absence. It begins with just two lines, Lord, not you, it is I who am absent. Those two first lines of a much longer poem put the problem of faith and doubt in its proper perspective. We are the ones who are absent from him, not the other way around. Still, we have the promise of his presence here in this Eucharist, in his word, and in the assembly of his, of his church. And as we depart from this place to go our separate ways, let us not separate ourselves from him.